In the mid-1950s, CBS launched a TV game show, and it was actually the most uh, successful game show of its time, and it spawned a bunch of copycats. They came along. Uh, The show was called The $64,000 Question. And uh, I have noticed, as I've talked about this, everyone who's got gray hair nods when I say that, and everyone who doesn't goes, what is that? You know, it was 1950s, right? Uh, The $64,000 question. And and the the game show, uh, by the way, $64,000 would be worth $500,000 today. Okay, the game show went like this. You get a question a week. Now, how about that? One question a week. Can you think of all the fluff that went around that show? I watched some of it, you know, that they would ask one question. The first one's for $1,000, and you answer that question, then you get to come back next week. And it's not until next week that you tell the audience, I want to go for the next question, because if you answer the next question, you double your money, you're at two. If you get it wrong, you get nothing, you see. So this goes on until you have $32,000. And at that point, drama, drum roll, please do you want the $64,000 question? This week, I was in a meeting with Bill and Michael, and we were discussing church challenges and issues and opportunities and problems and we had a number of things on our agenda, and they had no idea that literally I was thinking of using and reminding us of this question, this game show, because it leads us into our text. And in the middle of the meeting, I'm just sitting there, and Michael goes, Bill, that's the $64,000 question. <laughs> now, Bill had never seen the show. Neither had I. But, but, but we knew exactly what he meant. That's the question. That if we answer that, all the other questions are answered, resolved. Everything hangs on that question. And today, in our text, we come face to face with the Bible's $64,000 question. It's really not an exaggeration to say how you answer it determines how you live your life. Whether you would live with a grounded and secure hope or you would live life constantly looking for some ground that's not going to move on you. It's a destiny-shaping question. We find it in a conversation that Abraham has with three visitors who just happened to come by his tent. Of course, God's hand of providence in all things. If you have your Bibles, open to Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 15. Genesis 18, 1 through 15. The, the text today is two paragraphs. And, you know, with knowing our English uh, and grammar, we know, well, then there's two ideas. There's two ideas in this section. The first would be verses 1 through 8, and I'm going to call that covenant fellowship. Covenant fellowship. And then verses 9 through 15, we'll call that covenant assurance. And so if we're thinking of the passage in two parts, two ideas, you might just take it this way. It's about fellowship and assurance. I want you to follow along in your Bibles as I read. I'm going to do 
this a little different than maybe I normally do. I'm going to read just a little verse at a time. I'm going to pause. So we're just going to keep our heads down in our text, and then we'll make some observations and some applications. God's word to you and to me this Lord's day, Genesis 18, 1. Now the Lord appeared to him, to Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. Stop there to note, the Lord visited Abraham. The Lord here in Hebrew is Yahweh. God visited Abraham. Now, the reason I want us to be mindful of that is he will use the word again, the text will, and it's not the, the same word. Notice it goes on. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Note, when he says, My Lord, here in verse 3, it's not Yahweh, but Adonah. And Adonah carries the idea of someone who's very important, someone of stature, but not necessarily deity. I say that, as I'll say in a moment, because I don't know that Abraham knew that these visitors, in them he was being visited by God himself. It is, by the way, a theophany. What's a theophany? A manifestation, a physical manifestation of God. God's spirit, we can't see him, but he, he makes himself known and seen. And probably we would think this is the pre-incarnate Christ along with two angels. Because when we get to chapter 19, it says the two angels go on to Sodom and Gomorrah. So pre-incarnate Christ and two angels. Verses 4 to 8. Abram speaking, please let a little water. Notice uh, the, 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 the smidgen of stuff that he wants to do for them, so to speak. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree, and I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go on since you have visited your servant. And they said, so do as you have said. Cultural distance here that we need to gap, we need to bridge the gap. In that culture, this is the way, it's it's funny to me because what he gets ready to do is far from a little, isn't it? It's far from a piece of bread. All of a sudden, he's creating this banquet, and we're going, what's up? Did he just lie to him? No, that's what they did. Let me get you a little something. You know, it's your grandmother. Can you eat a little something, honey? And then there's a, here you go. You want some more, you know? It's the same kind of thing going on culturally here. And he he, he goes into this frenetic Activity Again, we know for a fact that this is God. This is a pre-incarnate Christ. I don't know that Abraham does. I tend to side with those, even commentators are, are, are in disagreement on this. I tend to side with those who would say he, he didn't know. Now, by the end of the passage, he knows, right? I mean, it's clear by the end of the passage. But at this point, I don't think he does. And I want to suggest that what he is doing, and even though we look at it and go, that's crazy and and, 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 and all that he's, he's doing here. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly prepare three measures of fine flour. You understand that's enough for a dozen people. We've only got three people out here. Uh, qu- quickly um, 
make the, uh, prepare the three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd. I mean, he's killing a cow. They don't even eat that much meat. They don't eat meat themselves. But now the guests come and they're going to kill the fatty calf. Yes, this is what they do. Tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant. He hurried to prepare it. He took curds and milk. The calf which he had prepared and placed it before them. And he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. What Abraham is doing is what was normal. This, this is just what was expected. This is an arid desert land. These are nomad shepherds. When people traveled, they didn't have the, they didn't have the hotel to stay in. There's no water. And so it was understood we take care of those who are traveling. We give them water. We give them food. Their, their very life, you see, depends upon it. John Kudo, writing in 1854, wrote this. A reputation for hospitality is hardly inferior to that of military prowess in the East. Yet this hospitality is scarcely reckoned as a virtue, so much as the want of it is reckoned as a vice, if not a crime. End quote. What did he just say? In that day, to not be hospitable was criminal. It's not even that you'd be lifted up like, you're amazing, you're so hospitable. It's accepted. It's expected of all. But if you're not, that's a crime. It's obvious when when we continue to read, which we will over the next two weeks, how about this? Compare the hospitality of Abraham to the hospitality of Sodom and Gomorrah. Extreme opposites, aren't they? Well, what does this mean? What is it, what, what's this hospitality mean? What's going on in verses 1 through 8? And again, remember we called it covenant fellowship. While our attention, I think, is generally drawn to Abraham's frenetic activity, his exuberance, his overabundance, while we kind of draw to that and go, that's, what is that? All? That's normal. We've got to go, what did the original audience read? And what to them stood out what to them was the message of the passage and i want to suggest it's this that when they read this and saw what was happening their thought was god who has spoken to abraham yahweh who has been seen in a vision by abraham as a burning oven and a fiery torch God is sharing a meal with Abraham. This is amazing. And as God reveals more of his redemptive plan all through history, you you, you understand we see that meals, shared meals, are way more than shared meals. When they cut a covenant, not every time, but when they cut a covenant later in Genesis, Isaac shares the meal with Abimelech. When the covenant's ratified in Exodus, when the, the people are saying, okay, God, we got your law. Oh, God, we're going to keep your law. What do they do? They eat and they drink. Passover, I, I'm just rushing through history here, but jet forward. What's it all pointing to? It's pointing to the new covenant meal secured by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, by which God eats with his people. And the meal is way beyond 
a meal. It is, of course, what we know as the Lord's table or communion. And when Jesus inaugurated it, he said something very interesting. And again, I'm going to read from Luke, but I think we, we, we connect back to Genesis. Luke 22, he says, When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to share this meal with you before I suffer. And then he institutes the Lord's table. But do you hear the heart of God? I want to eat with you. He could have used any other thing in the world, but he chose a meal. I want to be with you. I want want to share a meal with you. We're going to come to the Lord's table today. Because I think this first section prepares us for it. It reminds us that in covenant with God, we share meals with God. You know, Abraham, he's still sore, by the way, from the sign of the covenant, chapter 17. But he's in covenant. And if you have placed your faith in Christ... If you believe Jesus, he died on the cross for your sins, was buried, raised again. If that's your confidence and trust, you understand you're a son or a daughter of Abraham. You're in covenant with God. And we share a meal. And listen, not obligatory. I'll tell you this at least. From God's side of it, he wants to eat with you. He wants to eat with me. Because he wants and earnestly desires fellowship with his own. I got a, a, a quote here from Henry Nowen that Rob Howard sent to me some time ago. We're talking about meals, quite frankly. And Nowen writes, We all need to eat and drink to stay alive, but having a meal is more than eating and drinking. It is celebrating the gifts of life we share. A meal together is one of the most intimate and sacred human events. Around the table we become family, friends, community, yes, a body. The table is one of the most intimate places in our lives. You hear this language? I thought we're just chowing down. No, no. No, in a meal, one of the most intimate places in our lives, it is there that we give ourselves to one another. I've had the privilege in the last month of having three amazing meals. I had a birthday meal at David and Michelle Arms. And Michelle's kitchen, by the way, is the best kitchen in Nashville, though you'll never read about it. I had uh, the, the privilege of being at a rehearsal dinner for uh, uh, Rachel and Tucker Hamlet doing their wedding. And then uh, I had, had the honor of having hosting a dinner at our home just recently, last week, for... Uh, Maggie McKinney, Ben Majors, they're getting married, and it was a shower for them that we had. And listen, we ate at all three of those. But we did way more than eat food. Our souls were enriched. Our hearts were expanded in the meat. 
I'm going to invite you to stand right now because we're going to take this Lord's table standing. And the reason is because I want you to say something to one another as these plates are passed. And I want you to say it out loud. I, don't, don't, this is not a whisper time. This is a time to speak to one another. I want you to take the bread and the cup and I want you to, to say, as you, pass the cup, as you pass the bread and the cup, someone take the bread and the cup and hold it. I want you to say to them, the Lord delights to be with you. I want you to say it. You pass it to the next person. You turn to them. The Lord delights to be with you. I want it to go all the way across the room as we speak that truth to one another. If you've placed your faith in Christ, you're welcome to this table. For we are in covenant fellowship with the God of the universe. Our minds can hardly hold it. But he invites us to this table. Listen, to be with him, of course. And with each other. Again, as these uh, plates are passed, um, take the cup and start passing them. Start passing them, I'm sorry. Take the, um, take the bread and the cup and you will look at one another and you will say out loud, the Lord delights to be with you. 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 The Lord delights to be with you.
we hold in our hands uh, that which represents the body and the blood of Christ. Now, that sure is a little bit of bread. But what it represents is without end. That little cup of juice, I don't know that's going to do much. What it represents is priceless, powerful, without end. Lord Jesus, you gave your body and shed your blood so that Lord, there's a sense in which it's not so we could be with you, but so you could be with us. You first loved us. And we are grateful for your body broken. We give thanks. Take and eat. And for your blood shed, not the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of the perfect and only Son of God, we give thanks, take and drink. Father, would you help us to know more deeply just how how profoundly you want to fellowship with us. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Well, our text has has reminded us that in covenant we are in fellowship with God and what flows out of that, we'll note, is covenant assurance. Follow along in your Bibles as we pick up the story. I'll comment as we go. Then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, there in the tent. Notice they said Sarah, not Sarai. And it's beginning, I think, to dawn on Abraham Who are these guys? They know her name has been changed. If he was warming up to the idea, I think it explodes in his brain in what happens next. He, this is one of the visitors, and this is the Lord himself. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Who said those exact words just previously in chapter 17? God. And so now, if he didn't know it before, boom, boy does he know it. I'm in the presence of God Almighty. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. He's speaking to Abraham, okay? The tent's behind him, and she hears it. Where's she? Where's her ear? I mean, she's right on it, listening. Now, Abraham 
And Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. She had stopped menstruating. Sarah laughed to herself inwardly. Nothing came out of her mouth. She's thinking this to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord, also, my Lord being old also. And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? Saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? The pleasure there is probably tied to the pleasure of a child, probably not sexual pleasure here. Is now now by the way, in the game show, remember I told you they came back the next week and they were asked, Do you want the sixty four thousand dollar question? And they could say, No, I want to take my stuff and go home. Remember that? You're stuck. Because here it comes. Whether you want it or not, in God's providence, you're here. How will you answer the $64,000 question? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. I love the way this ends. It's, it's humorous, but... So poignant. Sarah denied it. By now, she's out of the tent. She's out of the tent. She goes, he said, why did she laugh? She's out of the tent saying, I didn't laugh. How how about this ending? For she was afraid. Now, let me ask you a question. What, What might be the reason Sarah was afraid? Okay, she's in the tent, and she just had a thought. The guy standing out front just said exactly what she thought. That's spooky. And she knows this is God. And she's afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. The end. Story moves on to something else. It's just like, it's just like, you know. What's that about? Well, let's, let's consider the $64,000 question. Okay, I'm going to camp there. How are you going to answer it? Think about, pause, and be careful how you answer. I think I speak for most of us, and if I don't, forgive me. But I think if you've placed your faith in Christ, if you believe this is the inerrant word of God, truthful in all it affirms, then you, you already believe that God spoke and created all that is. And the stars are sustained and suspended by his power. I mean, that's pretty crazy amazing if you if you're here and you've trusted christ then you actually believe that god became a man lived a perfect life died on the cross for our sins was buried and raised so you already believe that so when the question comes is anything too difficult for the lord i think we all with some measure of trembling conviction go what no I mean, if he does all that, no. And I think that's the right answer. But it's not the complete answer. Think about this. The the, the promise, or, or that question, I should say, comes in the very specific context. Sarah, though old, you're gonna have the promised child. You, in your womb. And is anything too difficult for God? No. And God delivers on his promise to Sarah to bear the son through her. Do you see that? 
What I want us to think about is, while nothing is too difficult for God, not everything we hope for is promised by God. All that is possible is not all that is promised. And so, when we bring our struggles before him, which, listen, they're in the room. We're facing impossibilities, all of us at some level, whether it's the health report, it's cancer, it's marriage that's hanging on by a thread, a child gone astray, a broken relationship, uh, hurt and harm. It's just, it's just, it's here, you see. And when we bring this promise to that problem or challenges, challenge, uh, that's not wrong, but it's not complete because God has not promised. He hasn't. He hadn't promised to restore every marriage, to heal every disease, to stop the injustice. He has not promised to keep you out of harm's way. Not in this life. And so the $64,000 question, I think, raises the million-dollar question. So what has he promised? What can I count on? Well, there's a lot to that answer, but I'll boil it down to two statements. The first is Paul's in Romans 8.28. I think it summarizes this very well. What can we count on from God? What was he promised? Paul says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. If you place your faith in Christ, every challenge and difficulty and disappointment and hurt and unresolved, unfixed thing in your life. You see, if that's true, which I believe it is, and if you know Christ, the promise to you is regardless, regardless of if they live or die, if it, if it happens the way I hope, regardless, we can know that God is at work in us and through us and even in the circumstances themselves. I don't understand that, but he says he can. And he'll work in ways that are for our good and for his great glory. That's what we can know. Like it, Hebrews 13, 5. I want to suggest you can know this promise. For the Lord said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Okay, but I want want the cancer to go away. Or I want this to be fixed. Or I want that. Here's the promise. I will never leave you or forsake you. At the core of God's promises is this. God says, I'm with you. I am with you. I will never not be with you. And I will bring you through this life. And I will bring you to that place. Yes, indeed. Where every tear is wiped away. No more diseases. All is right. And it's right forever. But in this life, I'm with you. And to the degree that we are, can I say this? Maturing in our faith is a degree to which we find even when it doesn't go the way we want. God's enough. 
Now, please know, when I say that, I don't always live that way. Because I got some growth to go in my own life. See, the life of faith, though, has come into that place in a, in a more mature and deeper way. When regardless of all, God is enough for me. Well, there's some lessons, of course. Man, there's lots of lessons in this. Let me me offer two very quickly for you that I think we can pull from this question and Sarah's response, Abram's, the story so far. The first is this. Think about this. God gave them the promise 25 years earlier that you're going to have a child. They're going to have a child and many children through you. 25 years. They waited. Why the delay? Why not? Abram, Sarah, you're going to have many children, and this time next year, you're going to have the son. Why not do it back then? Why the delay, may I suggest? God's purpose for you and I, one of his purposes at the core of our Christian life is that we become more like Christ. Read the whole New Testament. That's what it's about, being changed into the image of Christ. That's what he's shaping in us in this life. And the lesson, I think, here is our character is not transformed as much by promises fulfilled as by promises held in the face of the impossible. Let me say it again. Our characters are not shaped into the image of Christ as much by promises fulfilled as by promises held Though the promise is yet to be fulfilled. I don't know about you, but I'm telling you, I look back on my Christian life, my journey. And the times that I change the most, you know, and I'm not talking just about outward behavior. I'm talking about transformation. This is spiritual change. change the times my heart was changed the most were times not when I got what I was wanting, but when in the midst of Difficulty in God's kindness, I held on to the promise. I think it's true for many of us. That's when I was transformed the most. Let me say a phrase here I'm going to have to explain. There there is a poverty in what's possible. And there is an abundance in what's impossible. Okay, just hold those thoughts. There's a poverty in what's possible. And there's, there's an abundance in what's impossible. Lloyd, what, what do you mean? Well, look at verse 11 again. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. In other words, Sarah had stopped her her, her cycle, her menstruation. And it seems that for 25 years, there was in Sarah and in Abraham's mind the possibility that we can do this. I know we're old, but still have my cycle. Who, Who knows? I mean, they don't know biology like we know it today, but who knows? We, we can still pull this off. And when there's the possibility that, that we can do it, 
what do we do? Well, we scheme. No, she's not my wife. She's my sister. We'll get through this, right? Hey, Abraham, take Hagar. Uh, This will be the way. You see, when there's possibility, we tend in our flesh to depend on our flesh that we're going to make this happen. But now, she's 90, she's 99. She doesn't even have a period. And she has to face the reality. It's over. Abraham, it's now impossible. And in that moment, God passes by the tent. (laughs) This time next year. I don't know for sure, of course, what's going through their minds, but it seems they came to impossible. Uh, Only God can do this. God says, this is what I'm going to do. Oh, the abundance of impossible in faith. There's a second lesson. I I, I think this is so poignant how this ends. And we'll, 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 we'll get through this one here quickly. Sarah's doubt did not keep God from keeping his promise to her. See that? Sarah's doubt. Am I, I going to have a child? I'm not going to have, there's no way. Sarah's doubt, even amidst, her, her doubt in this moment did not keep God from fulfilling his promise to her. And I would suggest it's the same for you and I. In her doubt, God didn't say, well, you know what? Let me find another woman. No, do you notice in the text that the reaffirmation of the promise comes after her doubt? You will, I'll be here at this time, this time, next year, you'll surely have a son. I also think it's instructive that the Lord did not leave Sarah to hold her lie in secret. He exposed it, not to shame her. But isn't it, you know, the story unfolds and she kind of, finally she sticks her head out. I, I didn't laugh. And the Lord says, no, but you did laugh. Now, now, what was that about? I want to suggest it's this. God, in his grace, set her free from that lie by exposing it. You know, he could have left her, and she could have left, you know, gone for months. Who's not gone for months, years with, I lied. I lied to God. I don't want to tell anybody. Don't tell anybody I lied. You see that? But God just goes, boom, liar, right? And so Sarah's left what? Holding her lie. Got me. I'm a liar. And the faithfulness of God. Who in the room does not hold both? And you do understand it's in holding both that we're set free. You see, if you want to take your lie and bury it, it will bound your heart with shame. 
But when you go, I'm a liar. God, you're for me. Oh, you see, that's, it's all of grace. I think it's a wonderful ending that the Lord ends by exposing her sin to set her free. So what? What what do we do with this question? Let me ask you to consider that for a moment. Would you just pause in in a moment here? Just say, Lord, what, what do I do with this truth? What do I do with the answer to this question. And what do I do with what you've promised? Let's stand together. Would you stand with me? This word, is anything too difficult for God? It's an amazing word. It's not just, is anything too hard? Do you know what it means as well? It actually means this more times in the Old Testament than than is it too difficult. It means, is anything too wonderful? You see, is anything too amazing? It means that as well. And I want to leave you with this. The psalmist in Psalm 139, when he speaks about God's omniscience, omnipresence, you know, when the psalmist is going, God, you're before me, you're behind me, where can I go from you? God, you wove me in my mother's womb. Oh, God, you've numbered my days before there was one. Oh, God, what does he say? Oh, God, this knowledge is too wonderful for me. Same word. It's too difficult for me, if you will. And I think that's instructive. That how God does what he does is way beyond our pay grade. It's too wonderful. But that God has done what he has done in the Lord Jesus Christ is knowable, trustable, reliable, and wonderful. And so maybe rather than focusing a lot on the how, I don't know how, you see, how's that going to be? How can God do that? I know he can do anything, but how's he going to? Rather than the how, that we would go to the what? The who. The heart of God and what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. I want to say this. Is Is anything too difficult for God? You know what the real answer is, the core of the answer is? You want to answer that question with this. Jesus, 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 God bless.